Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would awaken our hearts and that you would give us a deep desire to see you. Amen. Today is the last Sunday of Epiphany. And some of you may be going, oh no, that means Lent is coming. But before we get here, I actually want to linger one more day in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is the season that's actually set aside to celebrate and to remember the truth that Jesus Christ has been revealed to us. It's a season for remembering to keep our eyes on Jesus. And it's actually customary at the end of Epiphany to read the story of the Transfiguration on that last Sunday. Because in this story, we remember those three disciples who had the very literal epiphany, the revelation of Jesus Christ in front of their very eyes, seeing his glory, the glory that he has from all eternity past and the glory that he will have for all eternity future. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, Justin, jog this verse in my mind with the choice of song and the offertory, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that God has shown the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts. It's a beautiful verse. The glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts. But actually on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, Andrew, and John got it not just in their hearts, but visibly. The light of the glory of God shining from the face of Jesus. It's a story we read on the last Sunday of Epiphany to remember this idea of the sight of Jesus. A little hint if you haven't caught on. The way the lectionary works is that the gospel is always the anchor passage. The Old Testament and the psalm were chosen to fit with the gospel to help us understand it. This is why you have that scene of Elijah on Mount Sinai coming face to face with God, preparing us to understand the transfiguration. And it's also why Psalm 27 was chosen. It's actually Psalm 27 that I want to meditate on with you today. Because in Psalm 27, we see David's desire for that sort of epiphany, that sort of sight of the glory of God, that sort of vision of God himself. Look at verse 4 and 5. One thing have I, excuse me, one thing have I desired of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To behold the fair beauty of the Lord. It's that desire for a sight of God that runs through Psalm 27. You look forward to verses 10. You speak to my heart and say, seek my face. Your face, O Lord, will I seek. O hide not your face from me. Or you look at the end of the psalm when he says, I would utterly have fainted had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. O wait for the Lord. Running through this psalm is that desire to see God, to see him face to face. 
David's desire to see God, David's desire to see him face to face, is actually the heart of discipleship. It's the very heart of the Christian life. That experience that Peter, Andrew, and John received for a few minutes, that vision that we will all receive in fullness in the end, the pursuit of that vision is the heart and soul of what it means to be a Christian. There are a variety of expressions that the Bible uses for this, but the two most normal are seeing and knowing God. We need to be careful because we are Westerners post-enlightenment, and knowing for us has taken on a very cognitive knowledge. Knowing in the Hebrew sense meant something far more personal and far more intimate. At the heart of the Christian life is this desire to see God face to face, to know him, not in the sense of knowledge about him, but to know him the way we would know a friend, a brother, a sister, a spouse. This is the heart of the Christian life. Underneath this heart, this sort of deep impulse of the Christian life lies something that is actually stunning. Because that desire to see God and to know him that we see David expressing, when you said, seek my face, my heart said, your face I will seek. Underneath that desire to seek the face of God lies something that's stunning. Underneath it lies God's desire for us, his purpose for you. It's easy for us to know these things and to move past them and to actually forget them. But God's desire for you is that you would actually become a part of his life. The difficulty with saying this out loud is the fact that those words are actually like cliché. They almost don't mean anything anymore. That God wants you to become a part of his life, and you're like, yeah, that's Christian speak, it's religious speak. But when you listen to the passages in the New Testament that describe this, we should be stopped and stunned. Our desire to know him, to see him, is a product of what he wants. And what he wants is that we would actually become a part of his life in the most intimate and substantial way. When you scan through the New Testament, you see things like Ephesians 1.10, where Paul says that God's plan for all the ages, the reason why he created any of this, is that everything would be united into Jesus Christ. Summed up, recapitulated in him. You look at 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul, describing the plan and the purpose of God, says that in Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. He's pulling it all together into his very heart. You look at 1 Corinthians 3, or 1, and at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that because of God, you were inside Jesus Christ, within him. These are thoughts, again, religious speak, we know them, but it's so easy for the magnitude of it just to go right over our heads. Colossians 3, Paul says that you have died. 
I imagine the people reading this letter were a little surprised. You're dead, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Words that we've heard perhaps too many times, and therefore they don't stop us. In all those verses, in many more, we see the plan of God. That God's desire for us is that we would be subsumed in Jesus Christ, taken into his very heart, made a part of his life itself, participants of his life in the most intimate way. I think about the way that Jesus himself expressed it, praying to the Father in John 17, when he said, I ask that they may all, the disciples, be one, just as you, Father, and I are one, so that they may also be in us. That sort of union is something that our minds can't get around. But this is the desire of God, his plan that we would be united to him, that we would be actually embedded in his life, participants with him. We see the fulfillment of that vision at the end of Revelation. In in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, you see this vision where at the very heartbeat of all is the very throne of God and of the Lamb, and waters of life pour from this throne, and there's trees of life with healing in their leaves on either side of this river pouring from the throne. And in that heavenly place, revolving around the throne, are the people of God. And they are filled with the light and the life of God, gazing at him in glory, with his name written on their foreheads. This union, this bringing together that is beyond anything that our minds can imagine. Peter in 2 Peter expresses that a little bit more bluntly and perhaps more shockingly. He says that God has granted us great and precious promises that we might become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. That the divine nature would course in your veins. This is God's desire and plan. This plan of God is the reason why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 that I came amongst you, O Corinthians, And I desired to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. It wasn't just an evangelistic tactic. It wasn't just the fact that the crucifixion of Jesus is the linchpin of our theology. It is that. But he said, I desired to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified because of that truth that's hinted at in Colossians 3, that we are actually on the other side of death and buried into the life of Jesus. This is something that Paul says more explicitly in Romans 6, when he says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like this, and we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection united with him in his death, a partaker of his life and divine nature, buried in him, hidden in him. There are so many expressions and phrases that the New Testament uses to describe this. The same truth at the center. 
that God's desire is that you would be so thoroughly united to his life that there is no separation, that his life is the life that's inside you. And the disciples' response to that reality is supposed to be, then I want to see him. I want to know him. I want to know him in the most intimate of ways. If he is wanting my life united to his, then I want to see his face. These two halves. God saying to you, I want your life buried in mine. And the disciples saying in response, then I want to see you. Those two halves are what you see in places like Psalm 63, where David says that my soul presses hard after you, and yet it's your right hand that holds me up. The two halves. Those two halves are what you see in Psalm 27, when David said, when thou dost say, seek my face. My heart said to thee, thy face I will seek. God calling, the disciple responding. At this point, you may go, yeah, I know I'm supposed to desire to see God. And yeah, I know that God wants me united to him. But even if you know those things, we need this reminder. We need the reminder bluntly from time to time because there are so many other things that crowd out the pursuit of God. There are so many other things that prevent us from desiring to see God. So many things that actually get in the way and that distract us from the thing that is the only thing that matters in the end. Obviously, our work, the pleasure of life, the distractions, the habits we have that are not good, even our own goals and desires, the things that we hope to get out of life, there are so many things that we think that we can't be happy without. And yet these things crowd out the pursuit of God from our hearts. The list of things that vie for first place in our lives is long. Lots of them actually are good. Lots of them are actually delightful things, gifts from God. But it is still so easy to have the thing that matters most dislodged from the center of our heart. In other words, to not desire the pursuit of God, and to not desire to see him more than anything else. Seeing God face to face, responding to his desire for us, is most important. We need the reminder, in other words, from time to time, that those things are actually not at the heart of life. That they don't actually make life. That they are not the thing that matters in the end. We need Paul's testimony from Philippians 3 of those sorts of things when he said, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I actually count them rubbish in order that very simply I may gain Christ that I might be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I simply want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his suffering. I want to become like him in his death, that by whatever means possible, I may attain to the resurrection 
from the dead. We need those reminders because all those things that he says, I counted them as loss in view of the value of knowing Christ. Those things are vying for our attention at every single moment of the day. There's something actually more powerful even than that for most of us. I mean, it's true that like our habits and pleasures and work and all these things vie for the attention. But there's something even more powerful than that, though, that prevents us from this wholehearted pursuit of seeing and knowing God. At the very core, the thing that actually is competing most with it is actually our own conception of ourself, our own sense of self-worth our own sense of our own identity, that sort of core part of who we are that actually we would defend at all costs, the part that we believe makes us something, that makes us valuable, the sense of self, our conception of who we are, our conception of who we want to be, that very thing is the thing that more than anything else is in competition with the pursuit of God. That sense of, but this is who I am is oftentimes the thing that's waging the most fierce war on the pursuit of God as being the center of heart and soul. What we prize most of about ourselves, and this may sound shocking to you, but what we prize most about ourselves, our very identity, the thing that we think makes us valuable, that very heart and soul must be put to death. Because that thing that we prize most about ourselves is very oftentimes the greatest enemy to the pursuit of God at all costs. As Paul said in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. There is in all of us this sense, yet I still want to live myself. And this unwillingness to actually fall into that crucifixion of self that leaves room for the life of God to flourish in its fullness. There's so many things in each of us that need to be abandoned that we might freely pursue Jesus. But at the core, it's oftentimes our own conception of who we are and what makes us valuable that needs to be put to death more than any of the rest. The Bible actually says that that has already been killed. Romans 6, Galatians 2, the list of passages is fairly substantial. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. That conception of ourself, that identity that comes out of ourself is actually already dead. And it's already been buried with him by our baptism, according to Romans 6. It's already dead. And yet, each of us keeps trying to resurrect things that should just stay in the grave. Each of us has a hard time treating that as dead. Our pride, our conception of ourself, our sense of self-worth, there are these things that need to stay in the grave because they fight for that thing that matters more than all else the pursuit of God at all costs. At the very heart of life is being united to Jesus Christ, our life being hidden in the life of God. And the call is to delight in that, to pursue that at all costs. And there is so much 
that needs to be discarded on the way. Like Paul said, to treat it as just stuff to throw overboard, rubbish to be discarded. And the thing that is hardest for so many of us to get rid of is our own sense of what makes us important. Our own sense of what matters. But that's the call of discipleship. And all the great saints have recognized that this is what that path looks like. The great saints are not great because they were full of theological knowledge. The great saints were not great because their lives were particularly holy. It was not because they were particularly talented, better people than us in those ways. Look at David. He committed every single sin in the book. And yet God called him a man after his own heart. And you go, so what makes the great saints the great saints? And the great saints are the great saints because when God said, seek my face, they say in response, your face I will seek. I don't care what it costs. I don't care how many things about myself I have to jettison and let go of. I don't care the cost. I just want to see you. I think of Julian of Norwich, a 14th century English mystic, who when she was sick in bed said very simply, I just want to be one of Jesus' lovers. I want to be with him as he suffers. And that may sound very strange to you. It sounds a lot like Paul to me saying, I want to share in his sufferings. That any cost I might know him, it doesn't matter what it is. That sense that he is the only thing that matters. And in that moment, the willingness to say, everything else can go overboard. Even the things that I prize most about myself. There are a lot of things that make that difficult. This is not an easy path. Please don't hear me saying to you, this is, oh, simple. It will come at the cost of our very self. Who we think we are and what we think matters most about us being put to death on the cross and being replaced with the life of Jesus Christ. It is difficult because constantly pressures, worries, distractions, our own sin, these things are vying for first place. Our senses are dull. We talk about seeing Jesus Christ and we're like, I can't. Our senses are dull. It is not a simple task. And yet it is the task of discipleship. It may take a lifetime. But I would say to you right now that it is better to take one very small step on that path that you maintain than to have a lifetime's worth of knowledge and theology that's never put into practice. The willingness to let go of one thing that is a hindrance to knowing Jesus is more valuable than all of the knowledge that we might gain. I think in that of the example of Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians of the church, who wrote prolifically until one moment when he had an experience of the presence of Jesus Christ that was so profound that he said, I will never write again. It doesn't matter. My words don't matter. And he never wrote again because he saw Jesus. One little step on the path where we discard one little hindrance that prevents us from knowing Jesus Christ is more valuable than all the theory all the knowledge we might have. 
This is a difficult course, and it is a lifetime's pursuit, but that's actually not where I want to end. The place that I want to end is actually something more gentle. On this difficult path, we need to remember that it's Jesus Christ who always moves first. He speaks first. Think back to that verse in Psalm 27. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Who spoke first? Jesus Christ. The Lord speaking to David. He always speaks first. Think about that vision that Peter, Andrew, and John were given on the Mount of Transfiguration. How did they get up there? Jesus said to them, come with me. He always speaks first. You think about Paul. I want to know him and everything else is lost and rubbish. I just want to know him. And you go, but Jesus spoke first to Paul. In fact, to get his attention, he had to knock him down and blind him. Hard of hearing like so many of us. Jesus always speaks first. He always calls us onward. This is the point where many of you may go, I don't feel like he's calling me. It's been a long time since I feel like I've heard his voice calling me onwards. And it's true that many of us go through seasons of profound dryness where it seems like God's voice is very distant. The thing I would say to you, though, is the fact that you are here, and I don't mean incarnation. It includes that, but I mean more broadly, the fact that you keep going in any sense is an indication that he has not stopped calling. Through the voices of friends and neighbors, through the circumstances of life, through the inner prompting of the Spirit, he keeps gently, ever so gently, calling us onwards. And even in those seasons of dryness where it feels like his voice is a million miles away, he is calling us, calling us into his very heart. The path of the disciple is learning to listen, learning to watch, hungering, drawing close to him. If you wonder whether or not this path is worth it, because there are times when it actually doesn't feel like it's paying off. There are times when you see like, what's the bother? I've tried so hard for so many years. Remember that Jesus Christ is life itself. That vision of revelation of the light in the life of God shining in glory through his people. Healing given for every wound. Water of life given. Remember the realization that all that is broken and hurt in us, he would heal and replace with his own life. He is worth it. So my prayer and hope today is that we would remember to hunger for his presence. When he says to us, seek my face, my prayer is that we would say, your face, O Lord, we shall seek. Amen.